The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. One of the things that we are kind of able to do on Just Love is we're able to kind of look at things in a longer term rather than merely at the moment. And so whether it be the fires in Hawaii or disasters in other parts of the world, what we like to do is to revisit them. In other words, to see what's going on after a particular disaster has gone on. At Catholic Charities, what we say is Catholic Charities agencies are there after the cameras go away, that we're there longer term to deal with long-term recovery issues. And so in a few minutes, we'll be talking with a guest who on the anniversary, it's about a year now, of an earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria back in uh, February of 2023. Tom, I guess it's natural, but that people kind of go on, move on to other things. They just, you know, don't stay. And it's, it's a little bit, I don't want to say it's sad, I guess it's natural, but you know, people, it takes a long time for people to recover yeah. from significant disasters. You're right, Monsieur. I mean, I find, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, it seems to me that if you will sometimes watch the mainstream news a little bit, it, it's like the, the, the disaster of the day. It used to be the disaster of the month. Now it's the disaster of the day. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, as you said, you know, people, you know, we, we kind of resonate for 15, Andy Warhol's 15 minutes on this disaster. And then, like you said, attention goes away. But as you said, Monsignor, for the people living in those spaces and in those places, they live that reality every day. And so therefore, you know, you can see where people would wind up thinking that they've been forgotten and yeah. uh, and, and they still need assistance. Well, and again, a little bit closer to home, they still are, there are still people who are suffering the effects of the World Trade Center, 9-11, mm-hmm. 2001, terror attack that was there. And, you know, people still are developing cancer. They're still developing diseases many, many years after that from that traumatic, uh, awful event in, in you know, now 23 or 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Monsignor. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, to me, it's tragic. And that's why I think, you know, as you said, I, I, I think given the givens, I think it's, you know, with both what, how we revisited the situation in Hawaii a number of, of, of weeks ago. And then again, to remember this terrible earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria and affected, you know, tens of thousands of people. I, I mean, I just it's just incredible. So I think it's it's a good it's it's a good thing to bring attention on these things. So why don't we go to our our guest, uh, David Lilly, who has been on our show before. He is the executive director of the Syrian American uh, Medical Society. And uh, he spoke with us about the situation in Turkey and Syria a year ago. 
and he can bring us up to date on what's going on there now. Um, uh, David, Lily, thank you for joining us on Just Love. It's, a, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, so, David, you know, I'm, I guess, very, very typical. My memory fades. I go on to other things. So for the sake of our listeners, just give us a recount. What did happen back a year ago on February 6, 2023? What happened in Turkey and Syria? It was a disastrous earthquake that happened, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake that shook everybody on the Syria-Turkey border and woke everyone up at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, we have 2,500 staff in that area and they rushed out of their apartment buildings, their houses, their shelters, wherever they were out into the snowy, wintry environment in their slippers, in their bare feet, and they could not go back in their house. For many of them, their walls or houses had collapsed or it was too dangerous to go back in. And then what? You know, just like you or I, to be rushed out in the middle of a, a street at that time of the day, what do you do next? But these folks were the first responders as well. Our 2,400 staff were responsible for providing care at hospitals and clinics throughout the, the earthquake zone. Uh, and yet they're dazed, they're concerned about their family. Mem many had lost family members. And there are suddenly millions of others displaced and being rushed to our hospitals, being rescued from the rubble. And there were just chaotic scenes in our hospitals. And I really, uh, you know, our staff responded wholeheartedly um, they went to the hospitals, they got on the phones, they moved mountains to bring in uh, medical supplies, but it was just absolute chaos. In Turkey, there is heavy equipment. There's the Turkish government that was able to respond and, and go to these places where 20-story apartment buildings had collapsed and use heavy equipment. Across the border in Syria, that did not exist. So people literally uh, were with, with shovels, with their hands, removing rubble, trying to get at those uh, who, were, who were surviving. It was just mass chaos and uh, just a miracle that so many people were able to survive uh, and move on. Wow, devastating, a devastating situation. Just again, this is for my own asking, why the diff, I mean, I mean, the Syria-Turkey border, geographically, topography is pretty, they're close to each other. I mean, it's a border. Why the difference in the ability to respond? Well, for one, Turkey is wealthier than Syria. And second, Syria had been at war for 12 years prior to this. So the people up in this area were not in, were not in an area that was controlled by the government. Opposition groups control this this area. Mm. The U.S. government deems this governance body in that area as a terrorist organization. Got it. <laughs> so uh, it, it, there is no official government, no taxation. So there, there wasn't governmental help, uh, no support for hospitals from the government or the, or the you know, taxpayers. It doesn't exist. There are no banks. 
uh, and and there is ongoing fighting today. So the people in that area, the four to five million people squeezed in that area in northwest Syria where the earthquake was up against the Turkish border, most of them have been displaced already by the war. Some were from southern Syria or central Syria and were forced out by the war. And they were in opposition-controlled areas. So um, they were poor to begin with. They had already lost their homes. They had limited economic means. And then this happened. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the border, there were many uh, Syrians who fled across the border as refugees. Indeed, two million Syrians had fled into Turkey. And the sad thing is those who had fled were seeking better lives for their families on the other side of the border in Turkey. And many of those who died, who perished, uh, were Syrians in the earthquake zone in Turkey, thinking that they had finally reached safety after 12 years of war. But their fleeing to Turkey had nothing to do with the earthquake. It had it, it, not previously. No, it it had to do with the war. Yeah. Uh, just it was just tragic. It was a disaster on top of a disaster. Yeah. You know, it seems to me what you you know, this is not a great insight. I'm just kind of stating the obvious. Um, no matter where there is a disaster in the world, whether it be man-made or whether it be a natural disaster, earthquake, flood, or it always seems to me. That it's the poorest people who suffer the most. They're usually living in, in the most vulnerable areas. They're living in housing that is cheap and maybe not built with good quality. They have bad sanitation, poor water, and living in, in the, the, the worst areas of a community, in a valley or in a you know rocky ravine or what have you. Um, what... What struck me, and I, I went to the earthquake zone days after this and was waiting to get into Syria with a group of our medical professionals, a team that we had sent in days later. And we were on the fifth floor of this hotel. I'm with uh, an, oncolo- an orthopedic surgeon from Chicago. And at 11 at night, <laughs> our whole hotel starts moving back and forth and shaking. And it, it scared us to death, but our building did not go down. 55,000 people perished. And again, these were some of the poorest of the poor who died. And looking back at it, there's so many numbers, 55,000 dead, hundreds of thousands injured, over 1 million people displaced and lost their homes. And each one of these people are an individual that impacts so many people around them in their community, their friends and their family. Uh, For example, our our, our key coordinator, our lead person, uh, staff member in Syria, lost 15 family members. And that day that we finally crossed the border into Syria, I had heard on the radio that he was helping our, our doctors get across. And I called and I said, Samer, Dr. Samer, what are you doing? You, you don't need to do this. He had just buried his 15th family member the day before. And he said, no, I have to do this. I just have to do this now. Uh, the doctor who was the director in, in our biggest hospital in Syria lost his wife and his baby child who in, in the apartment building that had collapsed. And yet these are the people who had to respond, who had to go back to work immediately to save lives. And it was just 
it's inspirational and altruistic to the extreme that here are people who lost, in some cases, almost all of their family members, and yet they go on to save other people and help other people. We're speaking with David Lilly, who is the executive director of the Syrian American Medical Society. And we're speaking with him on the first anniversary of that devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria. As he just mentioned, 55,000 people um, who died were killed, million displaced, millions more impacted by the result of, of that, and um, just a very, very devastating situation. You know, what we were talking about, I was talking with Tom before you came on, is that um, oftentimes in disasters as this, you know, the cameras show up for two or three or four days, and then they go on to another, another disaster or another problem. One of the things we like to do with our listeners is to not forget about disasters because we know people don't recover in a week or a month or or whatever. So it's now a, me, a year later. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there now. I appreciate your ongoing concern, and that is true. There, we go from disaster to disaster to war to war in this world. Uh, soon after, in September, there was an earthquake in Morocco which killed thousands and I ran over there and, and it was up in the Atlas Mountains talking, working with survivors. At the same time, there was massive floods in, in, in Derna in East Libya that killed even more people than in next door in Morocco, over 10,000 people. And then October 7th, there was the conflict in Israel and, and Gaza. And yet these hundreds of thousands, the million of people who were displaced from this earthquake go on, as you said, it's one year later now and there are still great needs. Uh, we, as a result, our organization, the Syrian American Medical Society, we, we provide about 10,000 medical services today, but on top of that, we have to get into the prosthetics business for those survivors who lost limbs, and so many lost limbs. Children who lose a leg uh, continue to grow, so you can put on a prosthesis, but in a year or two, as that child grows, you need a new, you need a new device as, as they grow, uh, which only makes sense. It's costly and it's time consuming, but absolutely essential for this person to continue his or her life. We needed, of course, also to do more physical therapy for those who were who had long-term needs. And what's so what was so important the day after and even today is the trauma that uh, the trauma that people went through and the mental health needs that folks still have. So we really upscaled our support for mental health and psychosocial support. The days after, I, I recall sitting with a gentleman in our, in, in our mental health clinic in Gaziantep, Turkey. This was very close to the epicenter. And he was saying he still, he still, he was very upset. His family was was displaced. Uh, people were not going into buildings yet at that time. And I'm sitting across from him, and he suddenly he he, he sits up straight. And says, ah, did you feel that? Did you feel that? He felt a tremor, and yet I'm next to him, and there was no tremor. It's this trauma that 
was going through people, our staff and, and so many people who lost family members and were just scared to death that from this earthquake and for fear that this would happen again, that they would be stuck in their in their apartment building. So we really upscaled that. Many of the walls and wards of our hospitals and clinics fell apart. The equipment was destroyed. So we we patched up walls, rehabilitated wards, brought in new equipment. Uh, and now we're actually building a new uh, comprehensive hospital. 90% of the hospitals in this war-torn area where we work were not originally designed as hospitals. They were office buildings or schools or anything that we could use to provide care to people. In one case, we built underground in a cave to protect the, the patients in the hospital from the aerial strikes from Russia and the Syrian government themselves who tried to strike terror into people on the ground and literally as a tactic of war struck our hospitals over and over again. And we lost over 50 staff to in the war just at our hospitals. So um, rebuilding, we expanded child protection services because there are so many orphans or people with families who just can't provide the support anymore. And we're training midwives and ICU nurses and doing more medical education uh, to support the displaced women and families. So the work, and, and I suspect from what you've said, the work isn't gonna end next week. It will not. I, you know, I, I, I grew up uh, going to Catholic schools, uh, the Salvatorians and the Jesuits in Milwaukee. And I look at their missions of, uh, of advocating for justice and standing with the poor and the marginalized. And I really feel that's what our organization does. Uh, we, we are non-denominational, but we really do stand with the poor. We provide uh, dignified care, respect, uh, and inclusion to anyone who is injured or who walks through our doors at a hospital. And I think this is the least that we can do to some of the poorest of the poor, those who have been given up on, uh, trying to help them see a brighter future, uh, help their families seek a better path forward. Uh, but that's one thing that we can do. We don't have a lot of money, but we can stand with them. Uh, we can try to give them hope uh and and give them the dignity that they deserve so let me you know you, you began to move in that direction um but let me ask you i mean the, the amount of work that you're doing is tremendous in terms of it and as you mentioned there were 2500 uh workers who were impacted directly by the earthquake what do you see as the future? What are the, the the increased needs that you wish you were able to meet? That's a great question. We, we have to bring on additional staff. There is so much you would like to do for everybody, but you, you simply can't do it. Just being able to keep our doors open uh, to do our part, to provide dignified medical care is one thing. Um, we would like to do so much more. Usually in war zones, uh, such as where we are, where there is not uh, an accepted <laughs> government, um, those who have cancer or, or need cardiology care, 
or need dialysis because of failing kidneys. Uh, sometimes, um, even if they need a C-section, they die. There just is not that kind of care beyond emergency humanitarian care in a conflict zone. And this is something that we've been expanding into, uh, trying to provide cancer care when the borders to Turkey were closed and people were no longer able, those who were able to access or could afford uh, oncology treatment in Turkey were no longer able to after this earthquake. So we upscaled greatly our oncology program. We also increased our dialysis program because yes, we, we were working with those with kidney failure, but so many of those pulled from the rubble had, had crushed organs and needed dialysis. So we would like to, you know, if we had additional funds, it would be our, our, our dream to provide even more care for chronic care. But these people who normally uh, just can't get the care or can't afford it, we would like to stand with them and help them. Um, we're also, as I said, trying to build a new hospital uh, that provides comprehensive care, which in the long run would save money that people don't have to go from this center to that center to that center. They could come to one place and get the care that they need. And we would also provide medical education there for the next generation. And definitely one thing that we're committed to is continuing to advocate uh, for justice, for accountability, for those who, who, who faced atrocities in this war. Just yesterday, two days ago, we were in New York City with two doctors from Syria who who had survived this earthquake. And we were advocating with UN advocating with, uh, with UN agencies for additional humanitarian assistance uh, and for accountability and for standing with these people that we face every single day. We also went up to a hospital in New York that had provided uh, four shipping containers after the earthquake, medical supplies, medications, and equipment. And they promised more to us uh, two days ago. It was just fantastic. That outpouring of support that we received after the earthquake and even today gives us hope and, and really inspires our staff, letting them know that people around the world haven't forgotten. Uh, you know, let me ask you, because I think I, am I correct that you're also doing some work in the United States? We do. Uh, we have uh, hundreds and hundreds of members uh, of the Syrian American Medical Society in the U.S. It started as a, a network of medical professionals, um, but they also provide free medical care in, in Chicago and in poor neighborhoods around the country. Um, they provide. They they give webinar uh, medical education webinars each month. Uh, they have, we have chapters that provide um, volunteer work uh, throughout the country, um, and they support medical professionals uh, who, who are students uh, who need a boost here in the U.S. too. So yes, we, and we have, provi we have provided relief uh, in hurricanes in the past in the U.S., in Puerto Rico, and elsewhere. Hmm. So, uh, you know, do you, do you just happen to know how big, not the medical community, but how big is the Syrian American uh, population community? Do you know how big that is? There are tens of thousands in the United States. There are many in the Detroit area, also Chicago, but all over. 
fact, mm -hmm. one of our doctors uh, in the D.C. area is currently in Gaza working at a hospital. Okay. All right. So, listen, I just want to thank you and the society and the members for all the tremendous humanitarian work that you have been doing and that you are doing. Um, before I let you go, is there kind of something that you want to make sure that our listeners are aware of regarding the work that you're doing or, or the situation in Turkey and Syria? Sure. Of course, if anyone wanted to get more information about the work that we're doing, they could go to our website at www.stams-usa.net. Uh, but maybe just my final word is that, you know, whether you give money or whether you go and provide earthquake relief, there's something that everybody can do uh, to the response to Morocco, to Gaza, to Libya, to Syria, to Ukraine, or even at home in your own in your own communities. There's so much that you can do with the peoples uh, that seek help, uh, that need attention, that also deserve dignity as an equal human being. We can all contribute wherever we are in, in any way, uh, in any way can make a difference. Okay. David Lilly, the executive director of the Syrian American Medical Society, which has done tremendous work in responding to the devastating earthquake that hit about a year ago in Turkey and Syria. And the society is also doing work in the United States in vulnerable uh, communities. David Lilly, thank you for being with us on Just Love. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Just Love. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and more compassionate. I think uh, what David Lilly mentioned kind of is almost epitomized in that no matter where we are, we can do those things, and particularly the loving of others in our own own communities. So we'll be back in just a moment uh, on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just than it will be more compassionate. Hey, Tom, in your travels, have you been to that part of the world, Syria or, or Turkey? No, Monsieur, I, I've, I've not gone to kind of like, you know, the Near East or the Middle East yet. I mean, that's that's always been on the bucket list. But unfortunately, every time I'm thinking of going, some something pops up that prevents, <laughs> that prevents me from going. Usually, uh, you know, a, there's a little bit of either, you know, military activity or, or other kinds of things. But it's still on the bucket list, Monsieur. I would love I would love to go. I think it's a fascinating part of the world. I love the food. I love, I love Middle Eastern food. So I would, I would love to be able to go. Yeah. I, I have not been, I mean, I've, I've stopped in the, in the airport in Istanbul, you know, to change planes, but I've not, other than that, I haven't been in Turkey. I've not been in, in, in Syria. So it, it, um, and as you say, unfortunately, it's a part of the world in which they're, Oftentimes, uh, are eruptions of violence and and war, 
in in different places that are there. I I have to tell you, I learned something I did not realize that kind of um, that northern part of Syria was a kind of a a quote unquote stateless mm-hmm. part of of the country in which you know there's a lot of um, you know non government control of that area. I was not aware of that, which you know makes sense why there wasn't the ability to respond as there may have been in Turkey. So anyway, mm-hmm. but, uh, all right, Tom, let's go to our next uh, guest. Our next guest is um, Dr. Larry Johnson, who is the president uh, of the Stellar and Charles Gutman Community College of the City University of New York. Um, Dr. Johnson, Thank you for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. Good morning. I am so honored to be here. Good to see you again, sir. Great. So uh, I know we chatted a, a short while ago and I learned a lot. Now I want want to make our enable our listeners to also be a little bit more creative. Can you give our listeners, because we're we are across the country and um I know that there is a pretty large state and university system in California, which I think people may be aware of. I'm not sure they're aware of other places, but tell us a little bit about the state and city uh, higher education kind of landscape in New York to set a context for when we talk specifically about the Stellar and Charles Goodman Community College uh, in New York City. Absolutely, Kevin. So uh, when you think about large uh, higher ed ecosystems, you cannot talk about those systems without talking about the City University of New York. Uh, The City University of New York is one of the largest systems that serves uh, throughout the five boroughs, and it uh, serves our students from various walks of life 25 campuses ranging from two-year to four-year to comprehensive colleges to professional schools. And Gutman Community College sits within this ecosystem as one of its two-year colleges that prepares students to go directly to a four-year once they've completed in two years, or it prepares them to go directly to work. So when you think of community colleges nationally as being places where uh, we can support workforce development, It is a place where students in high school can enroll and earn credits prior to enrolling in college. And that has been a great way for students to reduce debt over time, because one of our our goals at most community colleges is for students to leave not with a large amount of debt when they leave. So when you think of large institutions of higher learning, it's difficult to have those conversations and not consider, you know, the massive um, impact that the city of University of New York has made on not only New York City, New York State, but certainly throughout the nation. So now that you've set the broader broader picture, I think the city university system in New York goes back, oh, probably a century or so, doesn't it? Oh my gosh! If if I'm not mistaken, the flagship of our system is the city uni- the city college of New York. Right. Uh, And 
they recently celebrated over what a hundred plus uh years and it, it may be 175 years but okay. they've been around for a long time and mm -hmm. all of the other ancillary uh i would say colleges and in initiatives have really been in response to making sure their persons are prepared to uh, really change the trajectory of their lives. That upward social mobility is what our chancellor, Felix Matos Rodriguez, always talks about, that this that is the purpose of our university, to certainly meet the needs of our community and take them where they want to be. So let's come a little bit. You mentioned there are 25 campuses in New York City. Um, Gutman Community College is not the oldest. In fact, it's one of the newer, if maybe not the newest of those colleges. We are certainly, yes, that is correct. We are one of the newest uh, comprehensive community colleges to be open in the last 40 years in CUNY, which is well, amazing. Okay, so I'm going to throw you a nice fastball down the middle with this question, okay? So why do we need another one? You know, we have enough. Can't somebody get on the subway and go to one of the others? Why do they have to open this new place called Gut? Yeah, so that's a good question. In 2012, there were uh, there was a much at stake, and I'll just give just the, the summary. Students were enrolled in community colleges, and they were leaving community colleges in excess of 60 plus credit hours with no credential, no degree. So the answer to that was to really assess all of the best practices around the nation and to create a college that will allow students to complete in two years, matriculate to a four-year college, and finish in two years so that they can, in essence, finish their academic, at least their early on academic um, planning and programming for four years. So what was unique about Gutman is that our students are full-time the first year. That's not happening at most places throughout uh, the nation, especially a community college. 90% of our students are full-time the first year. They are in what we call a first-year experience in which we choose the curriculum for them. They have less agency in choosing what that would be, and they enter as a cohort. So as they move throughout their first year, they're moving throughout that first year in a cohort model. They are broken into houses where we're meeting with the faculty, the academic advisor, and what we call instructional teams, where they meet weekly or quite often to talk about the student success. And they pivot in terms of curricula to make sure that students are, the needs are being met, but certainly to make sure the students are completing. So that is a model that was totally novel. It was new. I mean, if you look at most community colleges throughout the nation, to find that 90% of the students are enrolled at a community college full-time, was unheard of. So the response to getting students out in a timely way was to make sure that they would be full-time. So um, how big is your first-year student body? How big was it last September? So we had the highest enrollment in the history of the college. We had a little over 1,100 students wow. last September. We began in 2012 with 300 students. We're only accepting students in the fall semester. But what was also unique about Gutman that many people do not know is that we only accepted students that were from to traditional higher ed, uh, I would say traditional K through 12 environments. So our students averaged 17 and 18 years old. 
So they were coming directly from the New York uh, public schools and New York Department of Education. At the time when we opened, we did not accept adult students and we did not accept transfer students. We did not really focus on workforce development programs. Right. So we were truly unique. Right, right. And so again, let me ask you, uh, uh, go to the next question is, how does that first year at Gutman differ from, let's say, the first year at uh, City College or Brooklyn College. How is it different? It's different in that before students even enroll in the college, they have to go through what's called a mandatory bridge program. Mm -hmm. This bridge program happens at least two weeks, two to three weeks before the semester starts, where we bring the students to campus. Uh, it was prior to the last couple of years, it was two weeks. We've now uh, reduced that down to a couple of days, both in-person and hybrid, where they learn what it means to be a successful student. And they have to go through this mandatory setting. They complete a number of assignments through the learning management system. And then we give what's called this uh, convocation at the end. So that's really unique about us. Many colleges do convocations, but to have them to go through a mandatory bridge experience, bridge to college experience, was very unique. The fact that our students are in a cohort and they cannot register for themselves, we chose their schedule for them. Once we identify if they desire to be a morning student or an afternoon student, we then package their schedule for them. So for the first year, again, they have no agency. We choose the schedule. We include a suite of intrusive advising opportunities where our advisors are meeting with them weekly. There's a zero credit course, if you will, called learning about being a successful student that the students have to attend. That's different from any other college where they're learning about time, you know, time management. They're learning about study skills, test taking uh, methodologies. And those are just some really unique qualities about the college. And we provide students with stipends for uh, success momentum. If they move forward beyond the bridge program, they get a stipend. If students uh, remain beyond the first year, there's a stipend and we've alleviated the barrier of transportation because we also give students transportation stipends. Those are things that are not happening. And when we created Gutman, we thought about all of the impediments to student success and one of those being transportation. So we've eliminated that by including that as a part of their enrollment at the institution. We're speaking with Dr. Larry Johnson, Jr., the president of Stella and Charles Gutman Community College in the City University of New York. And we're speaking about what makes Gutman unique. And this is my words, what makes Gutman successful. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Success is based upon really thinking about the students, what their needs are, and creating an ecosystem where they can grow, thrive, and succeed. So tell me, how successful is Gutman? So Gutman has been very successful. In our early days, our two-year completion data ranged between 35 and 45 percent. Some may say, oh, okay, yeah, that what, what, what does that mean? Well, let's put it in context. The national completion rate at most community colleges ranges between 10 and 20 percent. Gutman was seeing numbers that were two times that of the city and two times that of the state. So what we knew is that ensuring that students were full time, narrowing the academic pathways that they can enroll in because we chose pathways. We put them on a pathway and they knew exactly what they wanted. 
we have this intrusive advising process that's called appreciative advising. And we made sure that we track students from their beginning through to their transfer. And we helped them to decide based upon their goals and their ambitions where they wanted to transfer in terms of our transfer process. So what is now making us successful is that we've taken all of the great success from being a wonderful transfer college. And we're now saying, what about industry recognized credentials? What about getting people into academic programs that will allow them to go to work? So we have now launched what's called the Career Innovation Hub, which is our workforce engine of the college, where we have worked with our faculty to create a cybersecurity certificate, networking certificate, health information technology program, because we're continuing to focus on the traditional population, but we are also looking at those working adults who, after the pandemic, they're returning uh, to school. They may have lost jobs. Jobs may have changed over time. So we're looking at equity in terms of how can we skill up the workforce and really focus on those industry-recognized credentials in partnership with many of the companies throughout New York City. So I think, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when there was all this conversation about open enrollment. Um, can anybody get into Gutman? Absolutely. So we are one of the community colleges that has open enrollment. And that essentially means that a student does not have to have taken, and we welcome them, but they do not have had to have already taken an ACT or an SAT. Um, with most community colleges nationally, students can enroll with a GED, students okay. can enroll with their high school equivalency. And what we do is that we also look at, for, for the, us, the students would come in with their grades in English and math from high school, and we call that multiple measures of assessment. So we use that to determine uh, those students' placement in certain classes at the college. But yeah, community colleges should be a place where anyone, regardless of your academic background or preparation should be able to enroll. And what we do is that we build a robust suite of programming that will help to bring that student up so that they can be successful. Okay. We're speaking with Dr. Larry Johnson, the president of Gutman Community College of the City University of New, New York. So your success rate and to your graduation is double other places, which is great. But still a lot of people not making it. What's what's your assessment of are there other things we should be doing or what what are some of the factors that kind of hinder some of the students from succeeding? I think we have to be real about uh, the fact that not every student that comes to Gutman wants to transfer to a four-year college. Which is why we have to start thinking about the one-year certificate programs, the six-month certificate programs, the two-year uh, career and technical education programs, such as health information technology, for example, because we have made the assumption that every student that wants to come to our college wants to transfer. And we certainly support that because that right. More of the design, we wanted that four-year completion. We wanted to show that a college can complete a student in two years, and then the next two years, those students complete. And we have great success there. As I continue to meet alums throughout the city, many of them have done well. They've completed in two years. They've earned their baccalaureate de degree. They have great jobs. But I think adding the workforce piece and providing that menu of options 
I believe is where we are now able to show another type of success because we also have to define what the success mean. Does success yep. truly mean you you have to complete a four year degree, or could success mean that you complete your six or year cybersecurity certificate and you get a livable wage job and you too are successful? And then build in ways in which the student can come back into the college or the university through what we call stackable credentials to continue to move forward so that they can continue to increase uh, their their income, if you will. Yeah. So, Dr. Gutman, uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Johnson, um, the, um, you know, I've been around much, much longer than you. So let me ask you a question. You've mentioned it a few times. Um, how many of your colleagues kind of complain to you saying, how dare you tell those students the courses they have to take? Don't you want to give the students the freedom? You're, you're restricting their freedom. Who are, you? are you? Who are you to tell them what they have to study? How do you answer your colleagues who say that to you? Yeah, I, I respond by saying, let's look at the data. Uh, when yeah. you look compare 2012, what was happening was uh, there was this great book called Redesigning America's Community Colleges. Right. And in that text by one of our the faculty from uh, Columbia University, they talked about students having the cafeteria model. When they come in, there's so many different options, they get lost. So what Gutman did, they narrowed the pathway to five programs of study to ensure that students would not get lost in this cafeteria model. So what right. we've shown is that Limiting choices and options and also creating a very structured schedule does ensure student success. Right. That's, you know, again, I, I'm not arguing that. And but I'm what I'm not arguing. I'm just hypothesizing that that model might work in a number of other situations, too, where if everything's possible, you get overwhelmed and you're not making good choices. If there's a structured set of choices, it probably enables a person to be even freer because they're, they can move in a good direction. Absolutely. And what we've done this year, so we've added now prior to, I would say, 2021, we did not allow students to take what we call the program specific courses. Most of the courses were more of their, what we call the general education courses. Right. Beginning last year, we said, you know, we really want students to get uh, an introduction to one or two of their program level courses because right. we didn't want to be so restrictive. We've heard the feedback. Right. So we now have students enrolling in maybe one or two of their program level courses. And why did we do that? Because now it give, it helps with persistence. If students can now have right. a glimpse of what it means to major in accounting, business yeah. administration, then they would continue to persist versus, oh, I'm taking all of these gen ed courses. They're really boring. Uh, and I have not really gotten into my major yet. Yeah. Within the first year, they are now taking some of their major courses, which I am hoping long-term will show us that if we introduce some of the courses, still maintain the structure right. and the guided pathways model, that student will continue to persist. And we may see more of an increase in their completion. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, when, when I'm old and decrepit, they used to call those electives. When <laughs> I was when I was going to college, there was the core courses, the electives. And I remember early on, you were taking almost all the core courses and maybe you got to take 
one elective. And if, as you moved up, the it kind of shifted to the other way and you kind of took it within your major. So um, anyway, hey, listen, this has been fascinating. I hope it's been interesting for you. I hope you come back sometime because there's a lot more we have to talk about. Kevin, I would love to. Thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to talk a little bit about Gutman. If uh, the audience would love to learn more about us, we could be found at www.gutman.cuny.edu. Good. Dr. Larry Johnson, President, Stella and Charles Gutman Community College of the City University of New York. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love a weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Tom, I'm delighted that we had that conversation with uh, Dr. Johnson about Gutman, because as he pointed out, is that there are a lot of community colleges and some of the success rate over the years has not been uh, terribly high, and that Gutman has come up with a new model that seems to be much more successful, from my perspective, is really good. Most importantly for the students who kind of see this as, or, or experience this as a resource which moves them more forward, or moves them forward in their, in their lives. And secondly, from the point of view of, of we taxpayers who yeah. are, you know, supporting public education, that it's very, very valuable, I think, to make sure that our education institutions are doing well. And I think what uh, Dr. Johnson pointed out is what the research has shown, and it seems to be bearing out in at Gutman, is, you know, people go to community colleges, there are some life situations going on, that if they get some help with those, then they can concentrate and can succeed academically. If not, some of those life experiences are take precedence and people have to focus on them and they can focus on their, their studies. So um, I'm delighted that we were able to hear about the success that was there. So I wanna thank you for joining us again on Just Love. Uh, just do it, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself and our world will be more just and it will be more compassion. You know, as we move, um, you know, further into the winter days, we can make the world brighter if we engage in those acts of love of neighbor. We love ourselves more. And if we take the time to love God. So thank you for being with us on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.